you would grab a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 25. Psalm 25. That's where we'll start this morning. I feel for you, Craig. I, um, I am always amazed that in this congregation, we have song leaders who are able to do this with one hand and this with the other while singing at the right pitch. This baffles me. I cannot do it. It's a lot like juggling to me, but with like four or five balls. I don't know how to do it, but I'm impressed that you guys can appreciate that. And uh, you all should be thankful that I don't have to do that either. So, Psalm 25, beginning in verse 1. Psalm 25 in verse 1 says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all the day long. So this rich prayer centers around the idea of waiting. In verse 3, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. And in verse 5, for you I wait all the day long. We really hate waiting. If we know that something good is coming, we hate waiting for it. We say, I can't wait, or I can hardly wait. But if something is bad, then we, we don't want to wait for that either, right? That, that poisons the time that we have to wait, because we, we have this dread of what's going to happen. We just really don't like waiting. And our technology hasn't helped us in this, because now we have the ability through our technology to avoid waiting in almost any form. You don't have to wait at the doctor anymore. You can check in on your phone. I found this about my barber. You can go to the barber. You can check in on your phone. You don't have to sit there and wait. Oh, we love that. And in fact, my children have no idea and may never know what it is to, to have to wait to get the music that you really like. I remember waiting for months before I could actually buy the tape. You'll have to look up what that means. I remember when I took my kids to a hotel when they were very young, and we would, we would turn on the TV, and they would say, I want to watch this, and I, that's not how it works. You have to watch whatever comes on the TV. You don't just get to pick. You have to wait, and if your show's going to come on, you got to wait for it to come on. We don't know that anymore. That's really not a function of our society anymore because our technology has changed that, and what that does is it gives us this, this false sense of control so that because I have this technology, I can control whatever facet of my life I don't like, and I can eliminate the idea that I would have to wait for something or have inconvenience in any way. And so we really struggle with anything that we cannot manipulate or automate or rush. We don't like that in our time. But there are some things that just can't be rushed. Sometimes that has to do with people and relationships and dynamics with people. For example, finding a mate. Can't rush it, can you? There's no way to automate the process. In fact, that's probably not going to work. Or sometimes it has to do with a process that just takes time and it can't be rushed, like, like having a child. Can't rush it. It's going to take however long it takes. Or finishing college. You can try to rush it, but you're going to run into a, a threshold at which it's a problem to rush it. But most of all, I think you know what we're talking about here. We're talking about God and that God can't be rushed because God is going to do what God wants in God's time according to God's wisdom and God's directives and God's prerogative. So often, like David, we find ourselves waiting on him. 
We wait on God to keep his word. We have promises in the Bible. I think particularly of the promise, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, physical things will be added to you. And sometimes we make choices where we say, I'm going to put the Lord first and I want to do what's right first. And and we're not sure how things are going to work out where we have what we need. And we wait on God to come through. Or we wait on God to work in people and work in our community. And so we pray to God, open doors, give me boldness, help us to reach people. And then we wait and we pray And we wait. Or we wait on God to improve our circumstances. Maybe we have a career and we're very unsatisfied in our career, but we don't know where to go or what to do. And so we pray and we wait. Or maybe we're in a tough relationship. We don't see a way out of the relationship. There's a dynamic. We try to fix it. We do our part, but we pray to God and we ask for help and then we wait. And we find ourselves waiting. And so... I want to talk this morning about this idea, teach me, Lord, to wait. The song we just sang is is a prayer, it's a desire, that because we're going to be waiting, we want to wait well, we want to be good waiters. We want to be the kind of people who can endure the waiting on the Lord in the right way. And so I want us to think about some areas that might help us in our waiting, some ways that we work through the idea of waiting. So... First of all, teach me, Lord, to see with divine perspective. Most of waiting is just about time. And I think it will help us to remember that same age-old idea that we're all familiar with on one level, that God's view of time is different from our view of time. And that when we confront waiting, and we're waiting specifically on God, then we're going to have to understand that God may not think about that the way we think about that. Let's go to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, we're going to be looking at a number of places, particularly in the Psalms, that stress this idea of waiting. And Psalm 37 is a good one to to go to, to look at. Psalm 37, beginning in verse 7. Psalm 37 and verse 7. It says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. So, be still emphasizes the fact that we don't yet have what we're seeking. We are waiting for it, and we are still, we are comfortable with the idea of waiting for a period of time. We know that that's going to be a part of it. He also says in verse 8, Fret not yourself. Verse 7, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in the way. So there is a danger that as we wait, we begin to worry that God, where is he? I mean, in the meantime, while I wait for him to do something, it sure looks like the bad guys are winning. And if the bad guys are winning, that gets us concerned. I think that's really the context of the book of Revelation. When the world is winning, when Satan is winning, we ask the question, where are you, God? And we wait, but we wait with concern. And he says, don't fret yourself. Remember that God is going to be there when God is prepared to do that. So he reminds them in verse 9, the evildoers shall be cut off and those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. He is reminding them this is the way it will happen. And he is reassuring them in that. But it's just that that's going to happen in God's good time and not in our time. Not in the time that we think it should be. So, uh, verse 34, he also says, Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on the wicked, you will look on when the wicked are cut off. 
So I want you to notice he is encouraging us to wait, saying God really is going to act. It's just God's going to act when God's ready to act. And that might look different to us than it does perhaps to a future generation. Because in the moment, it means a lot of waiting. But in the future, there is a different perspective. That is the perspective of God. God looks deeper and broader than we look. So I think we need to remember that there are times in the Bible where people have to wait. We don't seem to notice this because we have the, the advantage of knowing the end of the story from the beginning. So we know already when we see the beginning of the story, for example, the story of Joseph, where Joseph goes down into Egypt and he, he works hard in Potiphar's house, when he works hard in the dungeons, and then he works hard when he's elevated, and he's waiting, and he's got this bitterness because of his brothers and what's happened to him. He doesn't understand. He's waiting. There are years that pass where Joseph has no idea if God has completely abandoned him or not in terms of the broader promises. He has to wait. And so we, we already know, hey, this is all going to work out. We can read the story with us. Oh, don't worry. Just hang in there, Joseph. It's going to get better. But we don't know that about our story, do we? We don't know that about our lives. Instead, we're in the middle of it. Or think about Moses, who has to wait and wait and spends 40 years before the Lord appears to him in the desert. There's waiting. And I think particularly of David, because David is, is anointed as king, and it is years, not only before anybody acknowledges that, it is years before he has any idea that he's going to actually have the throne. He is on the run from his father-in-law. If you ever think you have in-law problems, you have nothing on David. Okay? He is on the run. His father-in-law is trying to kill him. And over and over again, he has an opportunity to take matters into his own hands, and he will not. He is waiting on the Lord. So we have to remember there is a broader perspective than our perspective. See, we are a very time-focused people. And we don't put much stock in vague promises that are not, aren't attached to a date. Okay, so we'll say, hey, we should do something sometime. What do we mean? Well, nothing firm, that's for sure, right? Okay, but if we say, hey, let's do something Tuesday afternoon, that's different. See, that's the way our minds work. But God's not that way. God doesn't say, hey, I'll take care of this on Tuesday afternoon. Instead, God says, I'll take care of this. And we're left to wait until in God's good time, he decides to do that. Or we also have this problem that we sometimes overcommit ourselves or commit to too many things, and then we forget certain things, or we let things slide. God's not that way. God doesn't have so much on his schedule that he won't get to it. And God is not this way that he is saying, I'm going to do it immediately. God has a different perspective, and we have to learn to see with that different perspective. Now, this matures us when we begin to think about time differently. I want to remind you, this is James 1, 2-4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or your version might have patience there, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That there's an idea that we are imperfect and incomplete, but that we need steadfastness or patience. We need to be able to wait before we become mature and complete. That there is growth that happens as we wait. Waiting is good for us. And so when we see that perspective, we begin to understand how just because God's time and my time don't match up doesn't mean that I'm right and he's wrong. In fact, it means the opposite. It means that my concept of time needs to deepen. I remember when my children were very young, when they were babies. When, when children are babies, they eat now. 
Okay? Whenever it is, it's now. And if they don't eat now, you're going to hear about it. Okay? And then they, they get a little older, and you could say they'll eat soon. Okay? When they eat, they're hungry, they'll tell you, and you'll say soon, and then they begin to cry and fuss. You know. But over time, what happens? Oh, now, now I could say to my kids, we'll eat in a little while, and they'll be okay. See, as we mature, we're able to handle the waiting better. We're assured of the promise. We know what's going to happen, but we know we're going to have to wait for a little while. And so there is a maturation that happens over time as we learn to deal with time and to not get what we want immediately. And I believe that's part of the reason why God sometimes makes us wait. So waiting is good for us, and it helps us to see with God's eyes, with divine perspective. Second, teach me, Lord, to bear up under hardship. Usually when this expression, wait on the Lord, is used in the Old Testament, it has to do with physical salvation, salvation from a physical danger. So let's look at a few of these. Uh, let's look in Psalm 27. For David, it is Saul or it is the Philistines. Sometimes it's Absalom, his son. And what he does when he's in these situations is he takes an opportunity to pray to God and then he waits on God. He tells himself, reassures himself, wait on the Lord. Psalm 27 and verse 11. Psalm 27 and verse 11, he says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You see his problem, verse 11, is enemies. He talks about, in verse 12, adversaries and false witnesses who breathe out violence. He is in danger. These are his realities. And we don't know the specifics, but we know that it's hard. And so he says, this is what's happening, God. And then he says, now soul, wait for the Lord. Verse 14, be strong and take courage. Wait, wait for the Lord. So he reassures himself and says, I'm going to have to bear up under what I'm under until God helps me in whatever way God decides. Look in Psalm 31 with me. Psalm 31. Psalm 31 and verse 11 says, Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have, forgotten like, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. And then verse 23. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So you see the danger. I, I read that long section so you can see there, there are people who are scheming to take his life. His friends have nothing to do with him. There are lying lips that are attacking him. And he says then, wait for the Lord. Okay? He has, he's poured out his complaint to God. He's told God what things are going on. Now he waits for the Lord. He tells himself, now I need to wait. So... The idea here is that waiting on the Lord is going to mean bearing up under the load, under the difficulty, hardship. Some things are hard. 
some life situations are hard. Some prayers that we wait to be answered, it's hard to wait for them to be answered. Because we need it. And we know we need it. And we're asking the God who cares that we need it. And waiting is going to mean that we bear up under that load until God is willing to answer. Some things are hard and God doesn't instantly end them. I think we can know a little bit about why that is. Because I believe it has something to do with what we read in James 1, that it can mature and deepen us, even if the load is heavy. But there is also here the idea of unfairness. You see that in what David is saying. It's not fair what they're doing to me, and it's not fair that they're getting away with it. They are doing wrong to David, and he refuses to wrong them in return. No retaliation. I believe that's the idea of David when he doesn't harm Saul. He has those two opportunities to kill Saul when Saul is pursuing him. And David is saying, in that situation, Jehovah made you king. You are Jehovah's anointed, and when Jehovah is ready for him to be done with you, then Jehovah will take care of that. But I'm not taking matters into my own hands. I'm going to wait on Jehovah. So there is this idea that even though it's going to be hard for me, I'm going to bear up under the hardship, and I'm going to wait for the Lord. So what this is going to mean, I'm going to take a deep breath before I say this, is that we have to embrace our helplessness. That there are situations that we cannot control. There's nothing on your phone that will take care of it and get rid of it. There's nothing you can do. No physical action. No words you can say. No amount of money you can throw at it that will change the situation. There are things that we just must embrace that I am powerless. And yet for David, it drives him to the Lord to wait for God and to bear up while we wait. Can we embrace the idea that there are things beyond our ability to change and just trust God? The third thing here, teach me, Lord, to grow past impulsivity. So there is a temptation in waiting that we try to act and try to do too much. Let's go to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. Psalm 106, beginning in verse 12. Psalm 106 and verse 12 says, Then they believed his words, they sang his praise, but, this is talking about the deliverance from Egypt, they believed his words, they sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to death in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. All right, so you have the idea. This is talking about probably the craving for meat. It happens in Numbers 11. And then God sends the plague uh, and the, the quail and the plague and all of that. But the way that the psalmist pictures this here, in verse 13 it says, They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. And instead, they had a wanton craving, and they acted out of their craving, and they put God to the test. They did not wait for his counsel. Instead, they became impulsive. So waiting is contrasted with an impulsive craving because waiting and being impulsive are opposites. Right? You can either wait for something, or you can be impulsive, but you can't be impulsive and wait. 
Okay, those are opposites. So there's going to have to be some work done here to discipline ourselves against this idea of impulsivity, of doing what comes natural immediately, or trying to affect things in our own way. I'll flesh out what I mean by that in just a second. Let's look in Isaiah 30, Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah also has a lot to say about this, uh, using this phrase, the idea of waiting for the Lord. I want you to notice the way God pictures the the contrast here. I think you can see the contrast very readily in this passage. In Isaiah 30 and verse 15, how God's expecting one thing and the people are responding in a different way. Isaiah 30, 30 and verse 15, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride off upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. I want you to notice that verse 15. Returning and rest and quietness and trust. That's what God expected from his people. Okay, we're talking about a time in which there are invading armies coming, particularly Isaiah is concerned about the Assyrian threat. And there is a way to respond to that that is about trusting God and not taking matters into your own hands. And he says, instead of quietness and trust and returning and rest, instead of that, you have chosen to flee on horses, to try to run away, try to save your own skin, to try to do what came natural, to act out of impulse rather than out of trust. And so there is a a frustration God expresses because of that. I wanted you to learn to wait. And to wait, we have to grow past impulsivity. So what am I talking about when I talk about impulsivity? I'm talking about the idea that we all have emotions, particularly when we're in difficult situations, We have emotions that can become a problem. We feel fear, or we feel anger, or we feel some kind of desire that we want to let loose. And we feel a frustration that we feel we have to express. Sometimes we even feel this impulse that I want to fulfill some carnal desire because it will make me feel better about the difficult situation. And we have all of these impulses. And when we say, teach me, Lord, to wait... What we're saying is we have to learn to discipline ourselves so that our impulses don't control us. We don't become victims of our impulses. Now, there are times when we need to act. I think particularly of the time when Joshua prays. This is Joshua chapter 7. And Joshua prays and God says to Joshua, get up. Okay, quit praying. It's not time to pray. It's time to act because the problem was Achan had sinned, Israel had sinned, and Joshua needed to go root out the sin and eliminate the problem. It's not a time to, act, to pray when we haven't acted to, to quit our sinning and to deal with sin. There are things that need to be done. And I am not saying that waiting on the Lord means we don't do anything ever. But when we do act, it needs to be the thought, a carefully thought-ahead act, and not something that is an impulse, a wanton craving, a save-my-own-skin, like we see in these passages. There is a difference in waiting and living by impulse, living by the seat of our pants, doing whatever we feel like. 
The other part of this is that impulsivity really means, like in this passage, it means trusting ourselves. It means I believe I have the answers. I know how to solve this problem. And you know how much of a problem that is in the Bible. When we trust ourselves instead of God, we are so often wrong. We have the wrong answers. And in fact, God sees that as a problem in our trust for him. We can either trust ourselves or we can trust him. That's what it is about horses and leaving. That's what it is about calling on other nations and alliances. It's always about, are you going to trust me or are you going to try to do it yourself? When we're impulsive, we don't trust God. But waiting on the Lord means we're not going to act rashly or improperly just because we feel a certain way in the moment. So we have to learn then. How to live with emotions without letting emotions control us. How to live with the feelings that we have without always acting out of them. Teach me, Lord, to trust that you'll come through. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18. We just read this, but let's read it again. Isaiah 30 and verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. This is who God is. God is a God of justice, he says. He is a saving God. Put a couple of passages up here. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. So you see how waiting becomes a part of what we do and acting is what God does. You see the difference. We wait for God to act, and that's, the, that's characteristic of God. God is a saving God. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Psalm 62, 1 and 2. For God alone my soul waits in silence. He says, God is the one who will be my salvation. God is the key. God is my fortress. So there is a focus on trusting that God's going to come through for me because that's what God does. Not because I'm as good as the people in the Bible, but because God is the same as he was in the Bible. And God is going to treat people the way God treats people because that's what God is. God is a saving God. And as I say that, I think it's important for us to remember that God seems to specialize in saving in unexpected ways. You see that throughout the Bible. You see that the plagues on Egypt are unexpected. The attack on Jericho, different, odd, unexpected. Sometimes he reforms the nation through one man like an Elijah. Sometimes he takes an awful situation like Joseph's brothers and turns it into something good. Or an awful situation like evil Haman in the book of Esther and turns it into something good. But God's salvation is always interesting and it's always a beat off from what you would expect. And that's one of the reasons the stories in the Bible are so fascinating. Because we never know what God's going to do next. You never know. You can't pin God down that way. And that seems to be not only God's MO, that seems to be what God enjoys doing because it keeps us from trying to predict and regulate God, trying to make God like an app on our phone that we can control. That's not the way he works. He's not going to be that. So... When we see that God comes through and God's a saving God, but that God's salvation is often unexpected, I tell us all that so that we can remember how we can be on the lookout for God in our own lives. When we pray to God and we're waiting on the Lord, it's very often going to look different than we expect. We're going to pray for things and we're going to get answers that we don't expect in ways that we don't expect. 
In fact, sometimes in my life, I prayed and prayed and prayed, and I didn't even realize it, but I looked up, and, and I already had what I had been asking for. I just didn't acknowledge it. I didn't see it because it wasn't something that happened in some kind of formal, uh, amazing way, you know, something like one of the grand scenes of the Bible. Instead, it was something that happened in a different way. But God came through. This, though, is, is the difficult part. The difficult part is trusting that God's going to come through in my situation. It's easy to read about the Bible, the God in the Bible. And it's easy to say, he came through all the time. It's very difficult to say that about my situation. To have faith, true faith, that God's going to come through for me in this situation that I've been praying about. But that is what it means to have faith. Having faith means we trust that God will come through when there is no certainty that God's going to come through. That's the whole point. And so when we ask God to teach us to wait, it has to be involved with the idea of trusting Him, that my situation is not somehow different from others. And when we, when we do see Him come through, we give glory to Him, even if it's in a way that's unexpected. And finally, teach me, Lord, to serve well in the meantime. I've talked a lot about control this morning. There are some things that we can't control, but there are a handful of things that we can. I can't control what other people do. I can't control what God does. I can't control all of my circumstances, but I can control what I do. I can control how I act. And so I, as I wait, need to serve, to serve well in the meantime. And I believe that's the reason why many of these passages, if you look at the waiting passages carefully, they focus on integrity and right living. Because that's what I can control while I wait. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Psalm 25, 21. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. So you have the idea of do some things. I mean, what should you do while you wait? Be busy while you wait. Be working while you wait. Serve well while you wait. That's Hosea 12 and verse 6. So I can focus on my growth and my integrity and my faith. I can treat other people well. I can serve in the realms that I have, the, the roles that I have. As I do that, I wait, but I work. So it is not simply the idea of waiting and doing nothing. That's not going to work. Instead, we wait and serve in the interim. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the, the thing that Christians are waiting for, Christians particularly, is the return of Jesus. And that we have a thing that we're waiting for, an event that is yet to come. And that we're waiting for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior. And that we are like servants who are waiting for the master of the house. And that we need to wait well, we need to watch, and we need to be prepared but as we do that, I think it's important to remember this idea. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We're steadfast, we're immovable, we're abounding in the work. We are working well so that we can wait well in the meantime. Teach me, Lord, to wait. I just want you to remember waiting is good for us. So when you have to wait, let it be something that teaches you something. Thanks so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.